Harden. Blair. All right, buddy. What episode is it? It is. We are in the 20s. This yes. is episode 21. No. Plus another one. 22. Yes, yep. <laughs> 21 plus 1 equals 22. I knew as yep. I was saying that, I knew it wasn't right. 22. Yeah. yeah. You know, we I'm starting it. to think it's a bigger deal to me than it is to you. No, it's huge you know, to me. Is it? It's huge oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's really big. I, I feel like yeah. I'm always the one that, you know, just I, I absolutely <laughs> know what episode is. And, you know, it's just maybe, you know, maybe it's just not a big deal. I just, it, it, it's a huge deal to me. I just, <laughs> but you know how it is. I like to go with the flow um, and, and just, you know, just let the episodes come as they will. Yes, I agree. I That's agree. That's where I'm at. So well, I want to put a, I, I got to go put a plug. I'm going to jump right on top of you for, um, pondering underscore monkeys at instagram we've had more action in the last week than we've had since i built it we are up to guess how many followers Come 45 on. 45 I feel, like, I feel like you don't even care blair i feel like you don't <laughs> even. 36. 36 okay okay well i overshot a little thinking we had this just you know a uh, just this you know Panic, well, panic for the Instagram. That's going to be our target then for next week, 45. So go that's ahead awesome. and, and get on there, follow us, and uh, you know we'll, we'll do the posts so you know what's coming out. But we'd love to hear from you too. So send us some feedback and give us some comments. Um, we haven't got much feedback, so we want some more, um, except for just how great we are and stuff like that. We yeah, have, well, that's funny that. <laughs> that never gets old. Yeah. I, I actually, I did get some feedback. I had somebody uh, comment on the photos of Chase Delwell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. went to. I, I was. I w- almost didn't put those out there, and then I was like, you know what? Instagram, they can take it down if they want to. Especially yeah. when I had, uh, I think, the same conversation that you had had, which were like, oh, we've got way better photos than those. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know what? It it really, other than being um, pretty graphic, it really drives down drives home the point of what he went through too. So yeah, there's um, no doubt yeah. about that. It, yep. it definitely wasn't just for shock factor. I, I think after hearing his story and you see those photos, you understand what, what he went through. So, yep. um, okay. Well, Hey, big, big episode 22, uh, big episode 22. Uh, yep. We have, we have a guest. Yes, we do. We have a very, very special guest. We have uh, Dr. Kelly Klein, who is a professor of mathematics and physics and astronomy at uh, Carroll college here in Helena, Montana. He has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And this is um, something that I think is totally incredible. I love even saying that I've read it multiple times to myself. He <laughs> earned his doctorate creating and studying supercomputer simulations of magnetized gas deep inside the sun in order to understand the 11-year sunspot cycle which I find fascinating. So that is the introduction. (laughs) Dr. Klein, thank you so much for being here this morning. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. Yes, I really just Cardin, Cardin, let me let me ask you though. You find that fascinating. Is it the title or did you actually read the body of work? No, I okay. I haven't read the body of work. <laughs> oh, okay. Kelly, Kelly, I haven't read the body of work. I have to admit, but I just think that there that is that it's fascinating that that a study like that even um, takes place. It's something that I. It's hard for me to even fathom, <laughs> and it's you know something that you earned your doctorate doing. I, I just find that absolutely uh, mind blowing. It, it's really incredible to me. Uh, it's it's re- really fun stuff. We we live in an age of miracles and wonders, and the the scientific research going on these days is just incredible. And it was great fun to be a small part of the great endeavor of modern science. So what is, can I ask you, just jumping right in, what is the 11-year sunspot cycle? 
Okay, cool. So we look at the sun. The sun has spots. All right. If you take uh, the, if you look at the sun with the telescope and you shield it all nicely so you don't burn your eyes out or anything goofy like that, what you see is that every now and then these little dark splotchy patches appear on the surface of the sun. And um, they, they appear and then they exist for a period of days or weeks or maybe a month. And then they kind of break up and they disappear. And so it's like the sun gets pimples or something like that. And then when we figure out how big the sun is, you realize that these little dark patchy things are basically the size of the whole earth. And so that means they're incredible. And then we discovered they're magnetic and they got a magnetic field like thousands of times more powerful than the earth's magnetic field. And during some years, you just get like a ton of them where you can see like a dozen of them on the surface of the sun at any one time. And then other years, you get like one or two or like uh, nothing. And so they come and go in this 11-year cycle. And so you get a, you know, a few years of lots of sunspots and a few years of not so many. And what's even weirder than that is we find that they, they flip with every 11-year cycle, they flip their polarity. And so they're all pointing in the opposite direction from one 11-year cycle to the next. So basically, our sun completely builds a powerful, enormously strong magnetic field. You get a bunch of sunspots, and then it destroys that magnetic field, and it rebuilds it in the opposite direction. And this happens every 11 years. And trying to figure that out is what I got to play with some really cool computers to try to understand and make sense out of. See, that's the part that blows my mind. I knew that that would be the explanation, something absolutely and totally incredible. So these supercomputers, then you're doing really, really high level simulations. So they have to be able to, uh, I guess, compute basically what the sun is doing on the inside. That's right. We can't see inside the sun. This is a visible surface of the sun. We got some awesome telescopes and stuff, but we see the visible surface of the sun, which we call the photosphere. And you can't see any deeper into the sun because the sun is like, you know, made of really dense hot glowing gas and stuff. So you can only see the outermost layer. Now, deep inside the sun where all this crazy magnetic stuff is going on, um, we can't see that. But we know the rules of the game. We know the laws of physics. We know what, what magnetism does. And we know what hot electrically conducting gas does. And so we can take those ingredients and we can put them into crazy, powerful supercomputers. And then we can run big three-dimensional simulations to try to understand what's possible. What could be going on in there? We know the force is involved, but it gets messy and it gets complicated. And so... And then I can ring up the, the, the big supercomputing center down in San Diego, uh, all the way from here in Montana, and I can send my simulations down there, and then they turn it into a, they load it into a Cray T3E supercomputer, and I wait my turn, and then after a couple of weeks, they run my simulation, they send the data back to me, and then I can try to make sense of it and understand what's going on. And it's a fun game to play. Really cool wow. stuff. <laughs> so what? Uh, what's the what's the output? What does that data look like? Are you looking at like an Excel spreadsheet, or what, or what, well, what are you looking at? It's it's just a little bit more complicated than an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. So, Thank yeah. you very much. I bet so. Um, I bet so. <laughs> but we have some we have some great software where we can take you know because it's all three dimensional and stuff. And I got the temperature and the density, the gas and the magnetic field and. Well, there, there's some cool programs that people have set up so I can visualize this in three dimensions and I can cool. rotate it. You, you, you remember those scenes where like Iron Man was inventing his suit and it's all three dimensions. You can move him around and yes. stuff. I yes. get to do stuff like that. Uh, only it's like with magnetized gas inside the sun. 
<laughs> right. Right. That is uh, very, very In- cool. Incredible nonetheless. So, so Kelly, I have a, I have a question. So <clears throat> when you're deciding on a subject for your doctoral thesis, you obviously have lots and lots of, of potential subjects. How did you narrow it down to that? Was that a particular interest beforehand or was it something you were exposed to and thought this is really interesting? Yeah, that's the, the 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 process of doing scientific research to earn your you know doctorate, all that sort of thing. It's kind of an apprenticeship process. So I walked in there as a you know a graduate student to to Boulder, Colorado, and I took some classes, and that was really fun. And then they've got different research groups. So like there's this one research group where they all study supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies, and then there's another research group where they're all studying Mars and stuff like this. And um, I uh, then there's another research group where they're trying to understand the sun and magnetism. And I took a course from one of the guys in that research group, and he was a really cool guy. You know, he, he knew what was going on, and I started hanging out with them and and started learning about this field of research. And it's fun and it's interesting. And um, running simulations of things is a is it's, it's so easy to play. You know, it's so easy to experiment. Well, what would happen if you did this? Well, I try it. What happened if I did this? And I try it. And I had fun with that. So part of it was, uh, you know, this is the sort of research they were doing. And then once I got into it, I kind of followed my nose and I had my own instincts about what might be fun to study and what might be fun to try. And most of them failed miserably, but a couple of them turned out, (laughs) a couple of them turned out pretty cool. And uh, so we wrote some papers about that and put it together and and that's so. So it was strongly building on stuff that the, that the, the other people down there were doing. But then you know, adding my own little flair, my own little backspin to things, and uh, it was a blast. I had fun with that. <laughs> Carden, Carden, do you get the impression that he actually likes what he does? Yeah, I was going to say because I want to. I want to even rewind even farther because you just sound passionate about everything, you know. Oh, and yeah. I, I just want to. Um, no, how'd you even get into this field in general? So how, uh, how did this interest even start? How did, how did this all begin? Well, shoot, ever since I was a kid, I have always been an absolute science fiction nut. I watched all the Star Trek and the Star Wars and read everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> yes. uh, when I was a kid, my dad was uh, an elementary school science teacher, and I remember him waking me up back in like 1986 or something and getting going out and with binoculars seeing Halley's Comet up there and get my own telescope and being able to see galaxies that are like millions of light years away from us so I'm seeing lights they gave off like before the first human being walked up I mean it's amazing stuff it's crazy wonderful amazing stuff and I would imagine this enthusiasm that you really have comes across in your class so you're I, I would guess uh, your class is very popular. I have fun. You know, I get to teach the coolest, most awesome, wonderful stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, and, and if I don't think it's interesting, sh- I don't teach it because what, what's the <laughs> point, you know? If I can't get excited and interested about it, how am I going to convince somebody else to spend hours to learn all this stuff? So, yes, that's I think that's the, that's the biggest thing I try to bring to my teaching is just the fact that I'm this is cool, interesting stuff and it's worth learning it about is. and it's amazing. And so that is, yeah. it is fascinating. And and I've had, I've got so many questions, so I'm just going to bring it on jump in. I, you know, I heard, <laughs> I remember a long time ago and I, I can't remember, I wish I remember the source. I even tried to look for it, but I couldn't find it. I, I w- was watching a video about somebody explaining the kind of the gravitational forces of a black hole. Mm. I think that they use the term <laughs> and I'm going to, and not do this right, but I want to call it reverse spedification. 
Have you ever heard that? Is that close? Oh, okay. I, I think the term you're talking about is spaghettification, as in yeah, that's what it is. Right, okay, yeah. yes, as in like spaghetti, spaghetti, right? Yes, as yeah, in spaghetti. Okay, okay. Long yes. thin noodles. So, so the deal is, if you were to get up right close to a black hole, just outside the event horizon, not only is the magnetic is is the, is the gravitational field just just crazy, amazingly strong, but gravity gets weaker with distance and so if, if 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 you're floating next to a black hole and say uh your your feet are closer to the black hole and your head is farther away from it the difference in the force of gravity where your feet are and where your head is would be enormous would be vast would be incredible incredible so not only are you going to die and get pulled into the black hole but as you're being sucked into the black hole and dying your feet are being pulled so much more than your head it's going to stretch you out you're going to be stretched out almost as if a piece of spaghetti is being stretched uh, out sort of thing and so yes. this effect of being torn apart by the immense vast forces of gravity near a black hole is yes that is the real bona fide term it is indeed called spaghettification spaghettification okay uh, i was off by a little bit but i do remember and that just uh that has stuck with me for for so long because of just the immense amount of gravitational pull that black holes have that's the result of that and i, yeah. and I know that you said you're a science fiction guy have you oh, yeah. watched the movie interstellar oh, oh that's an awesome movie yes yes did you, did you see that their portrayal of the black hole what do you what do you think about that I, I thought, you know, uh, I, I love the movie. It's an awesome movie. I mean, Christopher Nolan just makes cool movies in general. Yes. He was agreed. able to get so much good uh, science in there. I think the science was, I mean, the, the, you got that like, one crazy planet with the tidal forces near the oh, black yeah, hole. Yeah. So you got the yeah. big thing. And then you got the distortion of time caused by gravity making time go more slower. So that's a big dramatic thing in the movie. That was fabulous. It was just Perfect. Right up until the point where they went in the black hole and then allowed them to go back and what, whatever. We don't, we don't talk about that. It was, it was, fun. It was creative. <laughs> uh, whatever. But by this point, I'm loving the movie so much that right. yeah, we'll give them a free pass on that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got a suspi willing suspicion of disbelief <laughs> on that one. Right. I think that's what they call it. There you so go. So what it, it, can you, can you layman's terms, what a black hole is then? Okay, good. So um, everything has gravity. I have gravity. You have gravity. Gravity is created by mass. And the more mass you got, the more gravity you have. And so that's why the earth has strong gravity. And we feel that And the sun is more mass and has even stronger gravity. And the strength of gravity, we, we can measure that by something we call the escape speed, the minimum speed it takes to escape an object's gravity. So if I want to escape the earth, there's a certain minimal, minimum speed my rocket has to go in order to escape the earth. And if I want to escape the sun's gravity, well, that speed is faster because the sun has more gravity than the earth. And if I've got an even bigger star, well, the escape speed would be even larger. And what happens is in our universe, there is a speed limit. That's the speed of light. Nothing can ever accelerate up to the speed of light. Nothing could ever cross the speed of light and go faster than it. That's the top speed to our universe. So if you've got an average, you've got an object with gravity so strong that its escape speed is even more than the speed of light, and nothing can go the speed of light. What that means is that nothing could ever escape from that. So a black hole is an object with gravity so strong that nothing, not even light itself, the pos fastest possible thing, could ever escape from it. And that's what makes an object become a black hole. 
So, so Kelly, now I, now I think it was in March, Popular Mechanics had an article yeah. and, and they talked about the fact that black holes may actually not be holes at all, but mm-hmm. stars that are, that, that have a, just a different sort of core. Um, is that just kind of a one-off type thing or is that actually gaining ground in the scientific community? That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Popular mechanics is fabulous. They do really, really, really good stuff. And so, yes, exactly. We're, we're talking about, you know, where, where do you get black holes from and how do they form? And, the, you know, the, some of the most massive objects we have in the universe are stars. And we have it pretty well established that one way of making black holes is you get a really big star. Not like our sun. Our sun is, you know, is a, our, our sun will never become a black hole, but a really big. There, there are stars out there that are five times the mass of our sun, 10 times the mass of our sun, 50 times the mass of our sun, 100 times the mass of our sun. Those kind of stars, when they, after they burn through their fuel and get to the end of their life, are what those stars will eventually explode in a supernova, and their cores will be crushed into possibly a neutron star, but even the most massive ones might be crushed even into a black hole. And we've, we've got pretty good evidence that that's one way of creating black holes in our universe. And how you get there and the processes from here to there is, an, is a really exciting area of research, and there's a lot more questions than we have answered. But that's the sort of research which is going on right now, trying to get that kind of stuff figured out. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, it I, it's, 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 uh, speaking of recent articles and stuff, I think I just read an article last week about a, a unicorn black hole. Mm-hmm. That's is right. That, is that something you've heard of? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's it in the it's in the constellation Monoceres, which is kind of like you know, unicorn. And then with what they found was an, an unusually low mass black hole. We've most of the black holes we found are, you know, like, uh, you know, 10, 20, 15 times the mass of the sun. This one was like three times the mass of the sun, uh, which is which is interesting. How do you make one that small ish? Maybe you can do this with your massive star exploding and then most of the stuff explodes outward, but some of it turns into the the, the mechanics of this is really mystery. It's really hard to do. Um, trying to, I mean, we kind of, we got Einstein's laws of gravity and then we've got our equations of gas and, and pressure and nuclear reactions, but putting them all together to understand these the, these last few microseconds of a, of a massive star's life when it explodes and maybe is going to make a black hole. That's the sort of thing where that's, I mean, that's that's right at the edges of human knowledge. And so what kinds of black holes you should get? What, what's the most least massive black hole you should get? The most massive, where, where do they form? How does that happen? This is something where we need more data. So finding these strange little oddball black holes like that are really useful to us because then we can constrain our models. And if we come up with a model that says you should never get a black hole that small, well, the model is wrong, and then we can figure other stuff out. Mm. So I'm assuming that the, this data, then uh, you looking at black holes, you're not just looking through a telescope and and kind of seeing a black hole and going, "Oh, that's we see a black hole." So how is this data then coming to us? How are we collecting this information? There we go. So the question is, how can I see a black hole if a black hole is by definition something which cannot give off light? And I'm an astronomer, so I have a telescope which picks up light. 
And the answer is, okay, so the black hole, if it's off by itself, I'm probably never going to see it. But if there's anything nearby the black hole, I can see that. So there are a lot of a uh, lot of systems in our universe where they uh, where you don't just have one star off by itself. Our, our sun is all by itself. But there are a lot of systems where you have binary star systems with two stars orbiting each other, or trinary, or even four stars orbiting around each other. So if I've got two stars orbiting each other, one of them's super massive and it's going to explode and crush its core and create a black hole, then I'm going to have a regular star orbiting around a black hole. And stars are constantly giving off gas. Our sun is putting out what we call the solar wind. So some of that gas from the regular star is going to be caught by the black hole's gravity, is going to swirl around the black hole, caught by its gravity. And as it swirls around the black hole, and it's gradually going to be pulled in, spiraling into the black hole, getting really hot. And as it's pulled into the black hole, it's going to be and getting really hot. It's going to give off a lot of light. And that's the sort of thing we can do. So uh, as it gets approaching the border of the black hole itself, it gets so hot that it even gives off x-rays. And so we call these systems x-ray binaries, where you've got a binary system of one star orbiting around something else, and it's it's giving off so much heat that it's, it gives off x-rays. And by studying these x-ray binaries, we can then figure out what's going on. And we can see, oh, well, this, this star takes um, oh, five days to orbit around something that I don't see except for a bunch of x-rays. And based on the mathematical details, now we can calculate, well, what, must the, what mass must the black hole have and how far away are they from each other? And we can get an enormous amount of detail from these systems where, well, we can't see the black hole directly. We can see the stuff falling into the black hole. And that tells us a lot. Okay, that that makes that makes total sense. And is a is a black hole's um, gravitational pull constant, or is it ge- always getting stronger? Okay, if the black hole's mass is pretty steady, then its gravity is going to be steady. Gravity is all about mass. The more mass you have, the stronger the gravitational force you have. So if a black hole is just kind of off by itself, it's not gobbling stuff up. It's not growing in mass. It's going to have a steady gravitational force. But if it's feeding, if it's eating, if stuff is falling into the black hole, being swirling into it, and so the black hole's mass is increasing, then its gravitational force will increase over time. And it will get stronger and stronger as more stuff falls into the black hole. Okay, that's a bit ominous. <laughs> that's a, is uh, so. I guess the 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 obvious question then: Are there black holes out there that are gobbling uh, mass up at a tremendous rate and are can like just continuously growing in size? Yes, but not very close to us. The nearest known black hole to us is uh, hundreds on the order of a thousand light years away from us. So that's really far away, and. Okay. There are places where we can see black holes that are really gobbling stuff up at a tremendous rate. Uh, We call these objects quasars. They tend to occur in the centers of very, very, very distant galaxies where they're gobbling up like several solar masses worth of mass every year. And some of these systems have millions of times the mass of the sun or even billions of times the mass of the sun. But these things are so far away that personally, we don't need to worry about them. Uh, that wow. makes me feel that, yeah uh, i do you feel yeah. better <laughs> yeah, I, actually i am yeah okay i'm going to take black holes off the list of things to worry about tonight. very good very good other things so so kelly i have a question for you um doing what you do and and the the subjects that you've studied and continue to study who are your heroes 
Wow, great question. Um, there are so many people from the history of astronomy and science and math and physics. I, I love reading about the history. I love learning where all this came from. I am an enormous fan of uh, Isaac Newton, you know, back in England, back in the 1600s. Oh my goodness. He, his, his father was a farmer who could not read or write, and he basically created science. He comes up with his theory of gravity. He invents calculus in order that he can work out the orbits of the planets. I mean, just crazy, amazing stuff. Other people like uh, in the 1800s, Michael Faraday, who works out, even though he you know, comes from a very poor background, never really learned math all that well, but figures out the secrets of electric and magnetic fields. And of course, once you move into the 20th century, you got people like Einstein and Edwin Hubble and just and uh, Subramaniam Chandrasekhar. There's so many people who've done so much that to advance our knowledge of the universe, to, to, to give us knowledge that nobody had before and help us to see where we are in things and how it all fits together. I, I think that's really, really fun stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, when, cool. when, when you talk about like um, people like Isaac Newton, yeah. you know, there's something to be said about the originators of anything, you know, whether it's music or science. Um, and when you have people that had the ability, the innate ability to create something that has never existed before, you know, and, and of course in science that happens a lot, but when you start talking physics and astrophysics and things like that, you know, have you ever given much thought to just the, the, the I don't even know how to really describe it, just how that happens, how the human capacity comes up with that when it never existed before? Yeah. I, I think that is fascinating. That is wonderful. I, I really love learning the history of that. And what you get is, you know, the, um, science has is what happens when two things come together. On the one hand, we need data, we need observation. So we need telescopes, we need people measuring and observing things very carefully and very precisely and gathering data. And on the other hand, we need, we need the theoretical stuff, which, in, in, which means equations and mathematics and finding patterns in the data and then trying to come up with generalizations. And that's, that's, where, that's where science is at its most creative, to make that leap where you see things in a new way, where you find patterns that nobody else ever saw before. And I, I love studying my way through the history. Where it's like, okay, here's the data they had, and here's what they were looking at, and here's what they had. And then somebody just sees connections, you know, sees a way right. to write right. an equation and see things and... I, I, I just marvel at it when I see somebody like Isaac Newton, who I can see these pieces to the puzzle lying out there. And I know that I could have stared at those pieces for a thousand years. Right. And I yeah. never would have been able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. at the age of 22, he puts these pieces together and they click. That's and all of a sudden we understand the universe in a deeper way than any human being ever had before. That's awesome. Well, Cardin, yeah, ob obviously, cool. obviously, he had the Excel spreadsheets, Cardin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man. Oh, uh, I do. So you 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 you've mentioned Einstein now twice, and I yeah. know um, something that um, I I always thought was fascinating was his ability, his predictable ability to reach beyond even where he was at to predict things that he w would would be discovered, but he yeah. knew wouldn't be discovered in his in his time. Right. And yeah. one of those was gravitational waves, which I think have just recently in the past um, few years have been kind of um, proven 
to be out there. And his was purely conceptual based upon kind of the math he was doing. It, 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 what is a gravitational wave? Wonderful. All right. So, um, you know, Isaac Newton comes up with his theory of gravity. And for two centuries, everybody thinks gravity's done. All right. You know, Newton's got his theory of gravity. You go work on something else because Newton, Newton, you know, just move along. Mic drop here. And then more than two centuries later, Einstein is playing around and he noticed some some strange things with the orbit of Mercury being just a little bit odd. And he's he's done his stuff with the speed of light. And and all of a sudden he gets this insight where he sees gravity in a totally different way. To Newton, gravity is just a force. It's a force between two objects. You know, the, the sun pulls on the earth and the earth pulls on the sun and there's a force between two things. Newton hadn't the slightest idea how gravity got from the sun to the earth, well, what transmitted it. He, he worried about that and then eventually just gave up. And then Einstein figures out how to understand what makes gravity work, what makes it happen. And he says, okay, so if I've got the sun here and the sun is a very massive, it bends space itself. The gravity is a bending of space and time itself around the sun. And that, and that space is not just this blank canvas on which you know reality is painted, but it actually has information in and of itself. And so then space is like this fabric that can be bent and warped. And of course, it's, it's in three dimensions, so it's warping into the fourth dimension. And I can't visualize that, but whatever, Einstein could. And so he writes equations to describe how gravity gets from the sun to the earth by bending space. And since there's empty space between us, it can get from here to there. And then, so Einstein publishes his general theory of relativity, his big theory of gravity in 1915. And one of the ideas in that is, well, if, if, a, if an object moves, if it jiggles back and forth, if it, it accelerates, well, then that's going to transmit gravity from here to there. If, if, if by some magic I could make the sun go away, uh, let's see, it takes eight minutes for light to get from the sun to the earth. If I could just you know wave a magic wand and make the sun go away, the earth would still feel the sun's gravity for eight minutes. It would, we would still feel that mm. gravity, and only eight minutes later after the sun is gone, then we would feel the ripples of gravity from the sun disappearing, you know, and, and, and then it would be cold and we would die. But it would be really interesting because we would feel the force of the sun's gravity, even though the sun is gone, because gravity is transmitted through space at the speed of light by bending of space itself. So this is totally theoretical. Einstein never dreams that anybody could ever actually measure this because it'd be really, really weak. And then for the last 30 years, they've been working at this amazing laboratory called LIGO, where they're trying to pick this up. And then about well, geez, five, six years ago now, after years and years and teams of hundreds of scientists and engineers building these laboratories, one up in Washington, one down in Louisiana, they got a signal. They made the ex experiment actually work and were able to pick up these gravitational waves. And so Nobel Prizes are given and awards given. And now this, this, this is a new way of observing the universe. It's like kind of a new type of telescope is effectively what it is. And they, they, they pick up these, these, these pulses of gravitational waves and the signals they're getting are basically where you got two black holes orbiting around each other and they orbit around each other and they get closer and closer and closer and closer and then splash, the two black holes merge into one big uber black hole and give off this enormous pulse of gravitational waves, which now we can pick this up and then we can say, oh, well, these are the two black holes and that was the mass of this one and that was the mass of that one and this is how far away it was. And it's an entirely new window into the universe that is right now telling us a ton 
about black holes. And that all comes from Einstein's equations, which he published back in 1915. That is absolutely incredible. <laughs> totally, absolutely incredible. And so I know that we're measuring that on a, on a grand, grand scale, it sounds like. But you also said that anything that has mass has, has um, you know, gravity. Yes. So is there, is there work to try to, to see this on the, the small scale to do all of this at, at a tiny, tiny level as well? Yeah. Yeah, now that would be interesting. Okay, so um, we can measure gra uh, gravity on a laboratory sort of scale. I can go down to our physics laboratory at Carroll College, and there are ways we can set things up with two masses right next to each other. And it's you know, since their masses are not very big compared to the Earth, uh, the gravitational force is small, but we can detect it using lasers and bouncing things back and forth very precisely. We can actually measure the gravitational attraction between two uh, kind of human-sized masses in the laboratory wow. and then the question is could you ever measure gravity on even a smaller scale could, could you measure the gravity from like an atom or something like that and there's and there's a lot of mysteries about what happens to gravity on a small scale some people think that gravity would be transmitted by little particles like like gravitons and things and uh there are experiments right now going on at some amazing laboratories in the world trying to see how small a force of gravity can we detect and what happens to gravity and how does it work on those very smallest scales? And there's way more that we don't know than what we do. There's a lot to be figured out there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's incredible. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to take this conversation from popular mechanics and intellectual, and we're going to go right to National Enquirer. Okay. So, <laughs> Kelly, you're yeah. a man. You've spent thousands of hours glimpsing, you know, or, or peering into our universe. Um, lately, and Cardin and I talk about this all the time, uh, it seems like lately there's been a lot more scuttlebutt uh, on extraterrestrials, UFOs. Um, with the Department of Defense um, having footage and things like that, it's really kind of come back. And now there's a new sense of authenticity that didn't exist before. So as a professional in this field that you're in, what is your take on UFOs and extraterrestrials? Extraterrestrials by themselves, off, far away, you know, the universe is big and there's lots of planets out there and I'm, I'm, I'm very open to that possibility. UFO is an interesting word though. That stands, that's three letters. And the first word is unidentified. And mm -hmm. I think there are definitely unidentified flying objects out there that people have taken pictures of. And I think that once we remember what the U means, then we can begin the conversation and we can try to figure out what these things are. I, I, I get nervous when people say, look, there's an unidentified flying object. That must be alien beings from other star systems visiting us. And it's like, no, <laughs> the U means unidentified. That, that, that does, it, it doesn't must be anything. Now we need to investigate and try to figure it out. And there's, there's a bajillion things that it could be. And I, to be a scientist means you got to get comfortable living with mysteries. Right. A, a scientist, we spend our whole careers dealing with things where we simply don't know the answers to them. So I'm comfortable with the fact that there's more stuff in the universe than we understand. But let, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to. I, I think sometimes people jump to conclusions because they're uncomfortable not knowing the answer to it. I, I haven't a clue what these things. I saw some of those guys on YouTube there with the crazy pictures out of the, you know, the, the things and all this. 
I haven't a clue what that is, whether that's, you know, some systematic thing or whether that's, you know, that's uh, an optical illusion or something real um, and what sort of real thing it might be. I'm fascinated. We need to investigate. We need to study that. But I'm not ready to immediately say there's something I don't understand what it is. It must be aliens. I think that's just way too easy. It's too big of a step. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I need evidence on that. I'll, right. Clearly, there's stuff we don't know what it is. I believe that. But it's in order to draw that conclusion, I'm, I'm going to need to – got to show me the money on that one. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. But, you, but you would say just based upon the vastness of the universe that it, it would be an impossibility for you to say you know, extraterrestrial life or d- to be definitive either one way or the other. I think that – all living things here on Earth, um, we, we kind of know the basics of how life works, right? It's a, you get certain chemicals, and um, and it's really complicated, and we don't know all the details. But basically, you get certain chemicals, and you get your DNA, and then you get energy, and there's liquid water, and yada, 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 stuff lives, all right? Right. And then I take my telescope, and I point it out into the universe, and we can study the chemical compositions of, you know, I, I point my telescope at the most distant stars clear off the other side of the universe. And what do I find? Well, first of all, they're, they're stars, just like our sun is a star. What are they made of? Well, they're made of hydrogen and helium and carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and the same stuff we got here. I look at those distant stars and they work by the same laws of heat and pressure and energy and gravity and all that kind of stuff. And all these physical laws that allow living things to function and do whatever crazy stuff it is we do here on earth. That's the same uh, throughout the whole entire universe. And then I say, well, okay, life here on earth is based on the sun. How many suns are out there in our Milky Way galaxy? We got several hundred billion suns, several hundred billion stars. That's that's like 50 times more stars than there are people on the face of the earth. And then Then we start looking at other galaxies. Right now, with the mighty Hubble Space Telescope, we can currently see several hundred billion other galaxies, each one containing an average of several hundred billion other stars out there, each one a sun, probably with most of them have their own solar systems of planets. The universe is big, and that's just what we see now. When they launch the Webb Space Telescope, we're going to see way more. I, that, I mean, the number of stars, the number of suns that we can see out there is far bigger than the number of grains of sand on every beach on the face of the earth. I, I, I think that life is probably a rare thing. Probably most stars don't have life on planets orbiting around each other. But jeepers, my imagination is not big enough to imagine a universe this big where this is the one and only right. place where right. life could have developed. There's got to <laughs> right. be life out there. Right, <laughs> right. Just because the the sheer immensity of it. Yeah. Oh, space is well, big. I, I, re- I remember a quote, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was, oh, yeah. was given a, a presentation and, and it was just a small thing of what he said, but he said the, the one thing that he really thinks that people, even himself, cannot grasp is scale. Yeah. He said the scale of what we're talking about is is so beyond what we can even conceptualize you know you have to well like the hubble the the, the pictures that hubble has sent back yeah. and you'll you'll see this cloud and you'll say okay these points are light years apart you know it, it's just a scale that we can't even fathom you know and cardinal and i were talking about one time that you know the sun i read that you could volume wise you could fit a million earths inside yes. the sun yeah and just the thought of a million earths 
getting stuffed in the sun. It's just, you know, and that you pointed out, our sun isn't even that big of a star. Yeah. You know, that there's much bigger out there. So um, that scale thing is just, it. you know, how do you even, how do you even ponder? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You've got to, I feel like you have to put so much time and effort and practice of just sitting and conceptualizing to even get to a point where you can start to under, not even understand, but to begin to, to, to feel the immensity of the scale. It's mm. such a practice in conceptualization. It's so interesting well, to me. Kelly, do you, do you believe just based on what you know, do you believe the infinite, the, excuse me, the universe is truly infinite? Hmm. Well, I, I, again, and this this is science. What, what, whether I believe it or not is 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 kind of who cares what I believe. The point is what evidence we've got. Sure. At this point, we have no evidence of any end to the universe. There's a limit to how far we can see, but that right. certainly is not the entirety of all that is. Um, uh, the friends that I have who are in cosmology, trying to study the universe as, as a whole, um, they all write their equations with the universe being infinite. Uh, partly, it makes the math easier. Um, but partly it gives you, a, it's just a sense of scale. We have no evidence of any limit to the universe at this point in time. So I, but beyond that, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. That, that in itself is incredible. Yeah, I, I was gonna, well, I mean, just, just about to yeah. say, I, I didn't even know that's brand new to me. I did not know that at all. For some reason, I thought that we thought that there was an end out there, <laughs> that the universe, now is the, is the universe ever expanding that was a that is that it still is there we go that's right our universe is expanding by which we mean the space between distant groups of 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 galaxies is expanding stretching i'm not expanding the earth is not expanding the solar system is not expanding our milky way galaxy is not expanding but the the space between galaxies is expanding and that was the first piece of evidence which led people to the idea of the big bang theory that the universe had a beginning a point at which time itself began and that expansion of the universe continues to this day as the groups of galaxies move farther and farther away from each other and uh the universe gets larger and larger now is there so the, the, it, so we're observing all of this happening right in the the big yes. bang and i'm from what i understand it was like a central focal point so are we observing kind of this expansion happening from a, a central location which led us to the big bang or how did the theory arise from the expansion of the universe wonderful okay so no there's no central location and the term big bang is actually not very descriptive it was actually made up by uh, an astronomer who was trying to ridicule and make fun of the idea uh, but it, it it's a nice phrase it, it caught on so the big bang equations say that at time zero, at the beginning of the universe, when time itself began, every point in the universe was equally filled with hot, dense energy under very high pressure. There was no point in the entire universe which wasn't filled with the fires of the Big Bang itself. And if, if the universe is infinite, then that means the universe was infinite then. And then that pressure, all that energy crammed into every cubic inch of everything in the universe, that pressure caused space itself to stretch out and expand. And all this is based on Einstein's theory of gravity, how space can be stretched and expand and, you know, gravity waves and all that sort of thing. Well, Einstein's equations were then used to create the Big Bang equations, which say we start out with everything super hot and super dense, and that causes pressure, which then causes space itself to stretch out and expand. And as it does that, 
the density of stuff goes down because now space is getting bigger, but you have the, still the same amount of stuff. And so uh, you have less energy per cubic inch of everything. And so gradually over time, things cool down. And then as things get cooler, you can form atoms and then gravity can form stars. But that expansion of the universe is still what we observe today. We find that the farther away a group of galaxies is from us, uh, the, the faster it's moving away from us. And in general, all the galaxies are all spreading out away from each other. There's no one central point. It's not a normal explosion where you got an explosion surrounded by empty space, but no, it's all of space stretching out. I think a better better uh, metaphor, better analogy is it's like, you, you think of like all the galaxies being um, uh, painted on a balloon. And as you blow up the balloon, then the space between the galaxies is stretching out mm. and, and getting larger and larger away from each other. Mm. Okay. Yep. That makes, that makes way more sense. So <laughs> that, that makes way more sense. Yeah. I, expanding. I, I guess expanding. Yeah. So what's, uh, and I hate, cause it's, you know, I'm sure it's been uh, predicted or thought about for sure, but what, what is the, I don't want to say the end result, but what happens when we just continue to expand? Like have, mm -hmm. have we looked looking at the equations? I, I mean, what does that do to the universe as we continue to draw farther and farther away from everything? Wonderful. Okay, so uh, working from the Big Bang equations, uh, the only force we're aware of that could ever affect the expansion of the universe would be gravity. So for a long time, astronomers tried to count the number of galaxies per cubic mega light year of space to see could gravity be strong enough to, say, stop the expansion of the universe. And so the idea was, well, if there was enough stuff in the universe, then maybe gravity could stop it and then bring it back together. And so our universe would begin with a big bang and end with what we call a big crunch. And so people spent a lot of time trying to look for that. And what we found is one, we aren't even close to have enough stuff, enough gravity to ever stop the expansion of the universe. And, uh, and, and actually the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating and getting faster over time for reasons that nobody really understands why. Mm. And so extrapolating forward, it looks like there was a beginning to time, but there will be no end to time. So as the universe continues to expand, we'll go through more generations of stars, but eventually the galaxies will get farther and farther away from each other. The stars will eventually burn out. And so many hundreds of billions of years in the future, things will be cold and not quite as interesting as they are now. So I'm glad we're alive now because now is a good time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we, we've got a window of a few hundred. We've, got, we've got some time. Yeah, yeah. Warn your descendants. You know, I don't got to start packing. Warn your descendants. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Kelly, I have a question. This is this is kind of a loaded question because I I don't expect. I, I just kind of. I guess I'm going to say your opinion because I know there's really no hard answers on this. Um, but when we talk about origin, right? Um, all this came from somewhere. Um, and the, the, it seems like the debate always ends with that one central point of origin. Uh, do you have, I mean, is there, is there, is science even looking at that anymore or is it kind of just that, that, that Rubik's cube, uh, you know, unsolvable Rubik's cube that nobody really knows? I mean, what, when people, instead of looking forward, look back, what, what, what's the kind of the current thinking on that? Okay. The Big Bang equations kind of take us right back to, uh, you know, about with one within one trillionth of a second of that moment of beginning. And we've got some pretty good data based on uh, various aspects of the universe that this big, big Bang is a real thing and it did happen. But as we look closer and closer into that very first second when time itself began, 
we we can understand what happened because well we know the laws of physics we know the rules of our universe we can do experiments here on earth and see what happens when things are really hot and really dense and under really high pressure and so we've got these great big atom smashers where we can do experiments and figure out what the laws of physics are but as you approach that time of beginning the big bang equations all kind of run away to infinities and things like that and i i don't know how the laws of physics work when the is infinity and the density is infinity and uh, actually our understanding runs out rather well short of infinity so there's a lot of mysteries about that now this this doesn't mean science gives up there are people who are working that rubik's cube you know from 24 7 um there are lots of hypotheses that have been proposed that you know about what triggered the big bang or maybe you know this is part of a larger structure and lots of ideas lots of speculation lots of papers with ideas published so far we don't have any data in order to sort those out and figure out of all the hundreds of published ideas, if any, actually tell us anything true, we need data. Nobody's figured out how to test these hypotheses. And so at this point, you know, it's uh, the, the scientific knowledge kind of ends, you know, about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And so that's something that people are people are working on. Lots of smart people are trying to figure that out. Maybe someday we will be able to scientifically say more about the instant of beginning itself and hey maybe we won't i mean life is big and messy right. and complicated yeah. we don't always understand it but people are working on it so who knows i mean you know Carden, think about what we're talking about we're talking about trying to figure something out that happened uh what's the official count kelly how many billions of years ago for about 4. 14 billion years or 14 14 billion <laughs> years ago and we're within yeah. a trillionth of a second to it we, yeah we well, need we sure. just gotta we gotta work harder you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> we need sherlock holmes we need sherlock holmes on this deal yeah, right. well i mean i mean think about that you know I, I i have a hard enough time remembering my where my car keys are at from 10 minutes prior but i mean literally i mean it's it just yeah it, it's amazing um okay well we are kind of at that point carden you yes, know what i'm are. talking about you know yeah, what I'm I talking do. about. I knew I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the uh it's the uh the monkey moment. Now, um Kelly, we kind of we we prepped you for this before, so I hope you haven't <laughs> been thinking about it and sweating it too much cuz I just know where I would be as a guest if somebody throw this at me. But we do as kind of a, a a ritual on the show is that when we reach our monkey moment, we ask our guests to kind of do the introduction which is the the monkey sound. So if you could, please give us um, you know, your best uh monkey sound intro for the monkey moment. <laughs> All right. How about this? <laughs> That was very excellent. good. Very that was good. Very good. Nice, nice, Kelly. Nice. Yeah, you Thanks. should. You, yeah, you should hear my first attempts. They weren't even close. Uh, that no, was, uh, actually, that was you fun. shouldn't. Actually, you shouldn't hear uh, them. Uh, that was great. That, actually, that sounded like a space monkey. So that was nice. Great. There we go. Good. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so the monkey moment is kind of a, just a question that we throw out there. We've asked a lot of our guests, and I think that. Um, Blair and I are both on the opposite ends of of the answers of this, and I think they're the scales are kind of tipping Blair's way. Um, but here's the I question yeah, for I, you: I don't know. I think they are. I think they have been as of late. Oh, oh, they've been okay. trending your way. Okay. So, uh, okay. So here here's the question, Kelly. Um, tonight, you know, you're out. You take your telescope out and you're you're stargazing, and into your um, yard lands a a UFO. Right. And I know it's unidentified, but the door opens and um, an alien identifies himself and says, hey, um, Dr. Klein, we know the, the studies and the research that you're doing. Would you like to come with us and, and see 
see the universe? What do you do? Um, do, do I get to come back or is this a one-way trip? Okay, now that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's an I... excellent, excellent question. That's an excellent <laughs> that's question. I and I, as a caveat, I get that one a lot. So here's the deal. Yeah, you, you definitely get to come back. But let's do, I think months are too short. So for this one, let's say it's, it's years. They are basically like, you know, it's, it'll be a three-year thing. Well, I, I think um, I happen to have four kids, and they're they're kind of young at this point. So um, <laughs> they, they got they got to come first. So at this point, I'm I'm gonna have to say, can you come back? You know, in about 15 years, I'm gonna have to take a rain check on this one because uh, uh, I, I got a couple of I, I got I'm kind of booked up for the next uh, for the next 12 years or so. Yeah. Oh, okay. That is, uh, plus gosh, plus really one Blair's great. camp. Yeah, that is a honestly, that is a great answer, and the answer that I should have given, um, according to my wife. <laughs> you know, I was just so caught up in the moment. You got an alien, you know. Yeah. And you know, it is, it is what it is. I've got young kiddos too, and and yeah, yeah in the, the same exact boat <laughs> for sure. Yeah, Arden couldn't get off the planet fast enough. No, 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 no. I just think, I just think sometimes when I think about it, I think you know, coming back and being like, I know Dad was gone, but this. Is what i've done this and this mm-hmm. is the stuff i gotta impart to you you know uh, mm-hmm. so anyways that's uh yeah <laughs> rain check though so 15 years here's the thing though 15 years down the line same thing happens the kids you know you're an empty nester yeah you're going you're going oh definitely unquestionably okay. absolutely okay See, so okay. that's so almost Kelly. a one for one there i think uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so okay so Kelly, <laughs> here, here's this other question and this is kind of almost turning in kind of a debate between Cardin and I, and we've we've brought some other guests in on this. So let's just go back to that scenario. A UFO comes down. It is an alien. It is an alien civilization. They identify themselves. It becomes a known fact, okay? So mm-hmm. the question for you is, how do you think the general public would handle that knowing, okay, conclusively, there mm-hmm. is aliens and they're here? The honest truth is I think the general public would handle it just fine. You look at all the weird stuff the general public has to deal with and all that stuff. I mean, it, just in terms of our popular culture and all that sort of thing, I think it would be headline, you know, for a couple of weeks. And, you know, as, as long as they're not invading us or anything like that, I think you would be shocked at how quickly this would get, to, you know, push past the fold and then to page six. And then pretty soon we're all back to, you know, the latest Marvel movie and all that sort of thing. Oh, Blair uh, plus two. Okay. So Thank I, you. I, I think, Kelly, that it would be absolute pandemonium. I think that uh, I think that people uh, personally, I think that people would use it not necessarily as an excuse, but it would be hard for people to be like, well, there's aliens out there. I'm not going to go. I'm not going into work today <laughs> and doing this kind of job or stuff like this. This changes everything I've ever known about anything. Um, but I don't know. I don't I don't know. I'm starting to get convinced. I'm hearing the other sides of the argument well, now. I'm starting. Well, to how about you? Would you stop going to work because of that? Uh Wow, that's I uh no, I guess I wouldn't. I well, guess I would can. show that's up. That's what yeah. telling you. You still got car payments. You you that's still right. have a mortgage. You know. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Okay, I, that's I, fair. That's fair. I, I, I get I know, it. It's mind blowing. Okay. But you know the the whole he just yeah. I mean we've we've debated this, but Cardin was sure that the general 
public was shut down. And and actually, to to my point, to your point, Kelly, I said the same thing. We're getting desensitized to a lot of stuff. And I, I, you know, the UFO stuff isn't even front page. It's like people like, nah, you know, what are the Kardashians doing? And, <laughs> and, and that's the society we're in. And I, I really yeah. feel it would go down just exactly what you said. I think it would be a big deal for a little while. And if they weren't hostile, it would just kind of, yeah. oh, well, that's weird. You know, we got, we got aliens here and, you know, move on. Yeah. No, so, Carden, are you jumping? Nope, are you changing? No, I'm nope, I'm not. <laughs> as you describe that, I as you describe that, I jumped right back over to the other side and just started thinking about what it would be like. Nope, absolute pain. It's in the chaos and yeah, it would, be, it would be chaos. Yep, I, I firmly believe that it would be chaos. Yep, I do believe that. Uh, maybe, maybe in some states, maybe in California, but here in Montana, we're pretty level-headed. You know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe Montana will be a totally different story. Yeah, and, yeah. and heavily armed. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, well, Kelly, I, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on. This has been very, very entertaining and enlightening. Um, I mean, it, it's it's definitely one of those things we could go on for hours and hours. Um, I, I really appreciate your enthusiasm for what you do. Um, when I was at Bozeman, there was a uh, professor, and we just called him Dr. Denny, and he taught uh, astronomy and, and phys physics and stuff. But you remind me so much of him because he had such a passion you know, I mean, he just loved it. And he loved nice. his experiments when he was talking about propulsion. He'd get on a skateboard and open an oxygen bottle. And I mean, the guy was just a nut. <laughs> but he he was brilliant in his own way. And, and he found that way of teaching and getting people excited about, you know, a subject that can really kind of overwhelm people. So uh, awesome. I, I applaud you just in, in your whole demeanor with it, because just sitting here listening to it, your enthusiasm and excitement about what you what you know and what you teach is, uh, you know, unmistakable. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I, I feel incredibly honored that I get to do this. I, I got like one of the coolest jobs in the whole world. I get to tell people about this amazing stuff. And I think that's just fantastic. So thank, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was, it was great. And I can't, uh, I, I, you know, ditto to, to what Blair said as a, as a former educator to just being able to bring passion to the classroom. I, I'm sure that your students are just, uh, just ready to come to class every single day. I know I would be at, and I just learned a lot even in this short time. So just thank you so much for, for coming. And it was, it was excellent. And we'd like to, we'll put it out to you. We'd love to have you back because there's a lot of topics that we, we didn't cover. I feel like we've only barely scratched the surface. Wonderful. Sounds like fun. All right. Okay. Well, Carden, episode 22 in the books. In the books. We've done it. All right. Okay. Until next time, Carden. Uh, so, so I can't say I bid you adieu. No, Did you we can't. Get, okay. Um, okay. Good night, John Boy. Good. <laughs> no, that's unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> you can say to infinity and beyond. I think that's you know, nobody's going to get that because you know the Waltons was so long. Nobody's even going to know what the hell I'm talking about. What was that? Was that? A, oh my uh, god! Was Kelly, that a radio you, program? Kelly, do you know <laughs> you know the whole thing about Goodnight John Boy? Yes. Yeah, that was one of my mom's favorite shows when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a classic garden. I'm sorry. You yeah, just, yeah, you gotta okay. go look it up. Yeah, for sure. All I heard all was right. you call me John Boy. That's all. I heard. <laughs> <laughs> all right it's pop culture buddy you need to get on and look okay, it up. okay okay yeah all right well until next episode Cardinal. good night good night <laughs>